All right, how many of you feel like you just like need some peace in this holiday season? Anybody going through it where you're just like, gosh, everything feels frustrating. I just, before I get into my message, I just felt like um, I want to encourage us to really take this week and just absorb the peace of God that he's given us through Jesus, his, our savior. Because the reality is, is there's a thousand things to do. Everybody knows that, right? And we can get so caught up in that. And then things pop up and they ruin our plans. People get sick and, and things change. For us, our oven broke. It is ruining and crushing Jason's entire Christmas right now. He's like, this is, this is all I care about. I don't even care about presents. I'm like, cool, I'm about to save $500. Thank you. <laughs> he, he's like so sad. And I, I reminded him about um, the the mantra that we put above our fireplace for Christmas season, it says, a peace like no other. I was like, bro, you put that there. You chose that. So let's sit in that place of peace. But I really do just believe that God um, just wants us to rest in his peace this season and not let things get under our skin. When things change, just be flexible. Be like, hey, God, what are you trying to teach me today? What are you showing me? Where am I getting to in control of things. And you're just trying to show me, why are you doing that? You have no control. <laughs> but I think we can have a real season of peace this week. I think God will just like, you know, wants to show up in your life in ways you haven't experienced in peace and comfort in the midst of the chaos. Yeah? Amen. Okay. Well, before we dive in, let's go ahead and pray today as we prepare for the word. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather together, God. We ask in Jesus' name that you would be in our midst, Lord. I pray for those who are in the room today, God, who are, who are struggling with finding peace, Lord. I pray for those who are struggling with this season, Lord. And, and I just pray, Lord, that we would remember that your word today applies to every day of our lives, God. And that in everything we go through, you are in our midst, God. So I just pray that as I speak today, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified and that you would meet each person right where they are and give them peace like no other in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, as we dive in, the title of my message today is The Servant King as we sit in our series, Majesty. The Servant King. So, servant and king. They're kind of polarizing, right? Most of us would call that a dichotomy. It's two very opposing ideas, this idea of servant and king. Usually you have servants serving a king, but we see this servant king in our King Jesus. Here's some examples of some extreme dichotomies that we see in our world right now. Love versus hate. Peace versus war. You've heard of a dichotomy, right? You've seen it in your life. You've gone, oh, this doesn't make sense. These two things don't blend together. But here's the other thing about that's interesting about dichotomies. Oftentimes, we'll call something a dichotomy, and it is not a dichotomy. It is a false dichotomy. Because there's not just one way. There's multiple ways. So in Servant King, we're going to see this kind of play out. But here's some examples of false dichotomies. One is that you either love me or you hate me. False. There's a third way. I love you with the love of the Lord, but I don't like you. There's a third way. <laughs> Another one is science or Bible. False. That's a false dichotomy. The reality is, is that many times, not every time, but many times, and if we give it enough time, the Bible is actually proofed by science. 
So we're finding things in science that lead to us right back to biblical text. The other thing is that you're either a part of the solution or you're part of the problem. I mean, I just am. I'm neither nor. I just am. I'm not a part of either. These are false dichotomies. And in Jesus, what we actually see is a false dichotomy. And why is that? Because Jesus is not just servant. He is not just king. He is those things and so much more. And so we see this, what looks like a dichotomy, actually be a false dichotomy because Jesus is both and all and everything. See, he's not opposed within himself. He knows, one, that leaders serve, and ultimately he is going to be the greatest servant of all time and the king of it all for all time. Still, though, my hope today is to capture the essence of his servanthood. It's where I want to pull us in and take us as we imagine our king as a servant, and it pulls us into this tension or this dichotomy or this falser fact, you know, well, is this who Jesus is? And as we learn that we too must become servants as we follow him. So we're going to start this with a very long verse out of Isaiah 53. Are you ready? Okay. Here we go, Isaiah 53, verse 1, all the way through 12. Who has believed that we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone put people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he bore himself our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all, astray, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned in our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and was considered false. Or, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished." After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death, and he was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels." So we see this picture in Isaiah of Jesus ultimately laying down his entire life as the servant to the people, saying, I will take it all on. I will serve them. And then we go into Matthew 20, and he reminds us of, a, he says this very surprising thing for someone who's supposed to be the king of it all. So he's talking to the, the boys, the 12 disciples, and the 12 disciples are going, hey, God, hey, Jesus, uh, um, who, who's first among us? 
Who's bestest? Anybody ever feel like the bestest? I'm like, I'm the best. I'm the favored one, right? You ever feel like that with God? Just me? Okay, that makes it true. I'm the best. (laughs) Here's Jesus' response in Matthew 20, verse 26. He says, it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, the king, servant king says, I came here to serve and I want you to do the same. The best among you are going to be the servants. That is the greatest, to serve humanity. So as we look into this, we're gonna look at five different ways that Jesus was ultimately demonstrating his servanthood in and through and and founded by Isaiah. So let's look at it. And number one is this. Jesus came as a babe. You're welcome. That's why we're here today celebrating Christmas, just so you know, because Jesus is about to be born on December 24th. (laughs) We also know that's, we don't know the date he was born, but that's when we're gonna celebrate. So the reality is he came as a babe. This is not a shock. Isaiah already prophesied it. He already spoke to it in Isaiah 53 2. A, we read it. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Jesus was coming and he would come as a babe. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Jesus came in the most vulnerable of positions, a baby. He was dependent on man to keep him alive long enough to make an impact. The guy could have been dropped on his head. This was a a really like, you just, you're just gonna send a baby down here to us to take care of? Some of us are parents and we don't know how to do that. <laughs> but that's what God did. God sent him as a son that he might be the most humble and come in the most humble of circumstances, a baby, and be entrusted. God fully entrusted him to humanity to steward, well, this greatest gift that would be to humanity. He came as a humble, spit-up-laden, diaper-needing change in eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus. There are some liberties there, okay? That's not in the Bible. It's just deduction, okay? (laughs) This is how Jesus would come. Warren Wiersbe reminds us of this. The servant is God, and yet he becomes human and grows up. The child is born. That is his humanity. He came through a mother. He was born as a human. The son is given, and that expresses his deity. God gave Mary the son. His deity and his humanity expressed on earth as a baby. He goes on to state, Israel was not a paradise when Jesus was born. Politically and spiritually, it was a wilderness of dry ground. He did not come as a great tree, but as a tender plant, vulnerable, vulnerable to all the things around him. We see that in Isaiah 53 too. He was born in poverty in Bethlehem and grew up in a carpenter shop in a despised area of Nazareth. So not only is he in human hands, but subject to every surrounding thing around him. Poverty, he was desolate financially. He didn't have this glorious like, you know, bassinet in this kingdom, in this palace where he'd be taken care of by 20 maids. He was vulnerable. He was a king entrusted to humanity and a broken earth. And see, the thing is, many were suspect of how he came. 
and where he came into. So we see this in John 1. You got to remember that the Jews are literally expecting to see their Messiah. They're not necessarily, they know what the prophets have said, but they may not be thinking this baby's going to come in Nazareth. So what do we see in John 1, 43 through 46? The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, hey, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathanael says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So these people are not expecting to find Jesus in Nazareth. These people aren't expecting to find Jesus in a place that they're kind of questioning, like, really? I don't think the king, the Messiah, the savior of the world is going to come from such a place as Nazareth. Have you heard about Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. You know those places? We've heard of them. Nothing good comes from there. This is what they're thinking about Jesus. That, I don't think that could be him because he, he's not going to come from Nazareth. He's going to come from somewhere else. But he does. Number two is this. Jesus came basic and underwhelming. Isaiah 53, 2b says, He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. Jesus had no riz. He had no riz. Just so you know, some of you be like, oh my gosh, do you know how we use that word? Yeah, I know how the kids use that, use that word. Some of you are like, what's Riz? I'm gonna tell you. Riz is Oxford's uh, word of the year. I was really disappointed because I thought for sure it would be something more intelligent than Riz. It's not, it's just Riz. Riz is this idea that, uh, of it comes from the word charisma and it's this idea of having style or attractiveness or charm. Kids these days, they use it about talking about a partner, just so you know. So we're not going to talk about that. This is just Jesus doesn't have attraction or style or charm, okay? But he doesn't have it. He doesn't have anything that you would be drawn to. He is plain. He is basic. He's got nothing that you're going to be like, ooh, that guy, he looks really nice. I'm going to go be his friend. Nothing. He is just basic and underwhelming. <laughs> See, our emotions couldn't be wrapped up in following him. There was no riz that would draw us to him. There was nothing that would pull us into this person of Jesus. Warren Wiersbe in Be Comforted confronts the ideologies, ideologies of both the, that time and today. The things that we struggle with and the things that they would have struggled with when it came to Jesus. That he says this, once they understood what he demanded of them, how did most people treat the servant? The way they treated any other slave they despised him. They put a cheap price on him. 30 pieces of silver is what they gave him to the cross for. And looked the other way when he went by. They were ashamed of him because he did not represent the things that were important to them. Things like wealth, social prestige, reputation, being served by others and pampering yourself. He is rejected today for these same reasons. See, Jesus was not desired in his time. And to this day, because he doesn't suit our comforts and our propensities, many of us don't choose him either. But that's the thing about a humble servant, right? They're not going to come and ask you to follow them. They're going to come and say, you have a choice. They might not even say anything. They're just going to show up and wait, 
And that's Jesus. He just shows up and he waits. He makes himself available to us in a way of humility. Number three, Jesus came and assumed the fate of humanity. Isaiah 53, three through four says this again. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. In order to fully understand this verse, we have to understand the theological concept of substitution. This specifically attaching the adjective penal substitution. So penal substitution is the reality that upon that cross, that Jesus assumed the fate of humanity, their sins that would lead to death and ultimately death. He assumed the consequences of our choices and took the place of each of us, absorbing what we ultimately deserve. That is what this verse is saying, that he would take on every single thing that we have done, every single darkness that is in us, he would take it on and absorb it. And he would now become the rebel. He would now become the trespasser on our behalf in order that we might have eternal life. Alec Moiter says this, this peace was lost by disobedience. And since it cannot be enjoyed by the wicked, the servant stepped forward to bring us back to God. This is what Jesus achieved by his substitutionary penal offerings. Matthew 8, 17 quotes Isaiah when he says this, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. More promises will be fulfilled. This is the beautiful thing about the Bible and about, about this walk with Jesus is we're not done yet. Aren't you thankful that there's even more great things coming? What does it say in Revelation 21, four? It says this, he's gonna wipe away every tear from every eye. Death will no longer be. There won't be any more crying or grief or pain. None of it, no more. Because the previous things have passed away. So when Jesus comes back, when we are done, when it is finished, truly finished, it was finished on the cross in the sense of our eternal life, that we might have salvation and no division between us and God. But in the sense of the finality of him returning, there's going to be this beautiful moment where we experience no more pain, no more grief, no more heartache, no more death. We have no more fear. And that is the promise of Jesus through this penal suffering. And sacrifice. And this is all because of our servant king. Jesus became our substitute, not just in death, but in all our sickness and pain, providing a way out, eternal life where we would one day be free from it all, as Revelation speaks to. We go on in Isaiah 53, verse 5 through 6, to see the depth of what we would experience on what he would experience on our behalf. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. F. Derek Kidner says this, this verse is perhaps the most penetrating of all descriptions of sin and atonement. Uncovering the fecklessness just so you know what that word means, because I had to look it up too. So if you don't know, I'm going to tell you. It means lack of strength or character. Any humans with lack of strength or character in the room sometimes? 
sin and atonement, uncovering the fecklessness, which is second nature to us, and the self-will, which isolates us from God and man alike. He paid it all for us. Even in our lack of strength, character, and connection to God, he'd still come and humble himself, putting himself in the path of humanity, entrusting himself to humanity. He'd humble himself completely, ultimately unto death. And here's the thing about his death. His death was not just a typical death. The Jews did not um, execute people by the cross. They actually executed people by stoning them. So the reality is, is that him being on the cross was actually more humiliating, the most humiliating of circumstances. That's what Wiersbe shows us. He was crucified, which was not a Jewish form of execution. Capital punishment for the Jews meant stoning. If they wanted to further humiliate Jesus, they would publicly expose his corpse. And Peter would explain that that's what happened in the crucifixion. So our servant king came and had the most humiliating experience even unto death. He's already the humble guy. He's already the one who is uh, just kind of like doing everything for us, picking it all up. And now we're gonna put it all out there for everyone to see. And they wouldn't have done that in that time. So he came and he served to the worst and most humiliating kind of death just for you and for, for me. Number four is this. Jesus came quietly. Isaiah 53, seven reminds us, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before shearers, he did not open his mouth. Have any of you ever had a hard time keeping your mouth shut? Especially when it's an injustice, right? Like when I was in my late teens, I knew everything. I did, I knew everything. I still do, but I keep my mouth shut. I learned. I learned some things. <laughs> but I would literally like ruin people with my mouth when I was like in my late teens. I did not know how to control it. Probably into my early 20s, I, w I had a very difficult time not saying out loud just whatever I thought. Whatever it, I thought, it didn't matter. <laughs> my parents were like, you should be a lawyer. You will not stop arguing. And I'm like, you're right, I should. It pays better, but... That was a lot of school, and I just decided that's not my path. <laughs> but the reality was, there's so many times, and even as a grown adult, right, we have moments where we know that what you're telling me, what you're accusing me of is wrong. I didn't intend for it to come out that way. I didn't mean that. Or no, I literally didn't do that. And sometimes God's like, shh, I actually am going to handle this a different way. This happened multiple times in the last few years for me where I've had to like realize that the only one who can really fight for me, because my words, sometimes don't our words actually make us look worse? They make us look more guilty. <laughs> and we're, we may not be guilty, but even defending yourself sometimes looks like more guilt than not. So there's been many times where I'm like, I just have to be quiet and trust God. And, there, and he promises that he will take care of those things, right? Just as he does with Jesus. He took care of Jesus. The guy was silent. He was quiet. As a servant, he did what servants were meant to do. It was culturally appropriate for him to be quiet. It was culturally appropriate for him not to talk back. It was culturally appropriate for him to submit to the will of his master. And Jesus did that. He submitted to the will of his father. At any moment, he could have proved everyone wrong. He could have said, well, yes, I am the king. Yes, I am the Messiah. Here, let me show you the ways. He could have healed the whole, every single person in the room. They would have believed him. 
but he didn't. He came quietly, unsuspectingly, in an unusual way. He walked through life humbly, even telling his mother his time had not come when she wanted him to turn water to wine. She won that one, by the way. He remained inconspicuous as he performed many miracles and told them not to tell who did it. He was like, don't, don't go tell anybody that I did that. Just go, go away quietly. That didn't work either. We're really good at not listening. <laughs> when in front of Herod and Pilate, he did not contend for himself. He knew his why, and he had no need to prove himself right or righteous. 1 Peter 2.22 says this, he did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Warren Wiersbe says this, everything about his trials was illegal. Yet Jesus did not appeal for another trial. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? He was prepared to do the will of his master. Moiter says this, animals go as uncomprehending to slaughter as to shearing. But the servant who knew all things beforehand went to his death with a calm silence that reflected not an uncomprehending, but a submitted mind and tongue. He knew what the will of his master was. My last point is this, and our team can come up. Jesus came to bring salvation. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Okay, we've now heard that three times. Are you like, why did you want to crush him so badly? We know why. We know the, why the Lord is pleased in this moment. The Lord is pleased because he knows the ultimate reality. He knows the bigger picture. Do you ever feel like that? Or you're like, what's the bigger picture? God knows why you're in the middle of your trial. God knows that in Jesus going to the cross and him being able to do so and him um, pleasingly doing so, that there is a bigger picture here and it is the ultimate fate of all humanity. So God's like, yes, this is great. This is gonna lead my people to communion with me, which is why I designed them in the first place. It's what I always have wanted. We're getting there, son, we're going there. We're gonna bring them along for the ride. It's going to be good. This hurts, it's gonna hurt for a moment, but guess what? I'm gonna raise you from the dead, so it'll just be for a few days, you'll be fine. Take a nice little rest, we got this. God knew. So when we say him say, oh, the Lord was pleased to crush him, how rude. It's not mean, it's because he knows. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. The Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He knew what was coming. Verse 11, after this anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Pausing there, without this act of servanthood, none could be made righteous. He was enslaved to our sins on our behalf. The death of the king was the most powerful act of a servant and it led to our salvation. And he will carry their iniquities, verse 12. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. He became the transgressor, the king consumed by the death of our sins, enslaved by our unrighteousness. Yet he bore the sin of many 
and interceded for the rebels. Philippians 2, 8, he humbled himself and by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Remember, that's a powerful statement right there because he could have just been stoned to death, but he went all the way to the most humiliating form of death to show that he was the servant king. Moiter puts it this way, the servant's suffering achieves salvation. The servant is now the executor of the salvation he achieved. He's now the servant king. He served unto death, leading us to our salvation and in turn establishes his kingliness that we might now serve him. In his death, in his humility, in him coming as a babe, in him walking out the journey of humanity with us and in his divinity, he is King Jesus. He is not a disruptive king in the way that he's gonna come and he's gonna beg you to follow him. He's a gentleman in the way that he's gonna hold the door open for you and invite you in and allow you to invite him in. He wants our hearts and he would go all the way to death on the cross to get your heart. This is who we honor and who we anticipate every single year. This is the birth we spend time celebrating. This is the most liberating birth of all time and all humanity and all that is and all that will come. Our servant king who would not end as a servant, but would move to his rightful position of king. He's the executor of the future, established. Hebrews 1, 2, as we close. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He took his position as king. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. He started humbly as the babe in the manger. And then he became superior to angels, God, majesty on high. This is our Jesus that we are celebrating, that we are thankful for. It's the, the God, the, the Jesus that literally shows us how we're to, called to serve one another. How in every day of our life, servant gave it all up for you that you might have eternal life and that you might then turn around and do the same for someone else. He's not asking you to die for them. Don't, don't freak out. But he's asking us to be a servant too, to serve the world around us, to lead them to the same place he led each of us in this room, which is communion with God and ultimately our salvation. Amen? Amen. Well, as we close this morning, we always like to give an opportunity for those of you who've yet to say yes to Jesus and make him Lord of your life to have that opportunity today. So what we're gonna do is pray a prayer all together. We're gonna say it out loud together. But if this is you today where you're like, I, I love that Jesus did that for me. I just can't get past how anyone would do that for me, but he did. And today you're saying, I'm gonna give it all to him. I wanna encourage you to say this prayer out loud with us with all of your heart. So let's go ahead and repeat this after me. Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I accept you as my savior. Knowing without you, this life has little purpose. Knowing with you, I have everything. 
I repent of my sins and I ask for forgiveness. Thank you for redeeming me and making me new. In Jesus' name, amen.